Welcome to another episode of Hemp Barons. I'm Dan Humiston, and on today's show, Joy talks cannabis education with a leading accredited legal and professional education provider. They talk about how the constantly evolving regulation makes it so important for all professionals working in the emerging industries to stay informed, and how many professions are now accepting continuing education credits. Let's join Joy's conversation with Chris Terp and Steph Monte from the Seminar Group. Well, welcome, Chris and Steph. Thank you for being with us on Hemp Errands today. Hi, Joy. Hey, Joy. Thanks for having us today. Such a pleasure. You know, the Seminar Group has been a part of my life since 1998, about a year after the Seminar Group was formed and founded in 1997. Uh, as a legal and professional education group based in the Pacific Northwest right near Seattle on the gorgeous Bashan Island. And my, the bulk of my dual career in hemp has been as a compliance and complex civil litigation paralegal, uh, mostly working for high-end firms in the Seattle area uh, on the West Coast. And so I moved to the West Coast with my then two young boys. Uh, who are now 27 and 29, and began work as a legal secretary and then quickly became a paralegal and then a senior paralegal to some very high-profile cases being put forth in those Seattle firms. And the seminar group was a staple, is a staple throughout law firms across the United States, but certainly in that area. And my goodness, uh, when the revolution occurred, because as you folks know, I am the a hemp store and have been in the hemp movement since the early 90s. Um, and when the revolution occurred, that cannabis, first medical marijuana, then adult use marijuana, then hemp became legal um, up and down the West Coast, the seminar group was one of the first, I think the first professional CLE, continuing legal education uh, purveyor uh, of, these, of these credit-bearing continuing legal education credits. Um, to enter the cannabis market um, and begin to really uh, chop the wood and carry the water of those emerging industries by doing what? By providing professional education on the developing and now rapidly developing bodies of law and regulation around all forms of cannabis. Uh, and, and was just so thrilled when that began to happen. And, and in disclosure, of course, to our listeners, I'm very, very honored to be a part of presenting for those programs. Um, and, and most relevantly, and I've been doing that, I think, with the seminar group since 2014, um, but being the program chair for the upcoming CBD considerations in the Pacific Northwest in Seattle on March 24th. But dialing it back here, it's Chris, Chris Turk, who decided that the seminar group needed to be birthed into the world. Chris, tell us what brought you into professional and legal education. Well, this is a family business, so uh, I had done a couple of other things prior to this. Right out of college at University of Puget Sound, I, I went to work as a brewer for McMinimins in, in Oregon. I did that for five years. Uh, I bought my uncle's restaurant in Colorado. I did that for five years. I moved back here, and I was going to open up another restaurant, and my mom said she needed some help down at, uh, at the seminar group, and um, that was the beginning of it. I've loved it ever since. It's education, which I really like. I did go back to school myself and, and got an advanced degree in business. And uh, we like what we do. It's, it's fun. It's cutting edge. 
sometimes we get to the party a little early, meaning we're there before an issue is really an issue. An example would be driverless cars. We did a program on driverless cars a few years ago, and that was ahead of schedule. We need to wait here for the next uh, couple of years. The, the marijuana industry, um, we saw the writing on the wall as it was poised to be legalized in many different forms. State by state was interesting. The fact that it's not federal, the fact that it's local state by state allowed us to, to tap into all these different markets with all their own uh, nuances and, and laws and regulations. Here in Washington state, um, I had worked with a gentleman named Dan Harris and Dan is an international law attorney, and we have done some programs on doing business in Asia with him. And when this came about, they had hired Hillary Bricken, who you all know. Uh, she was in charge of their alcoholic beverage section of their law firm. Well, of course, in Washington state, marijuana was absorbed into uh, the the uh, Liquor Control Commission. and. Uh, made things very interesting. Everyone had to learn at a, at a high rate of speed uh, how to put these together. I think that the Alcohol Commission did a great job in the fact that they went out and they had uh, town hall meetings to address people's questions and concerns well ahead of the fact of the timing where marijuana was legalized in, in one form or another. Uh, Hillary Bricken led the charge from the private side, representing companies that were pushing to become legal and to become licensed and, and actual businesses. And we've been lucky enough to follow Harris Bricken as their new firm. Um, as they grow, they use us to get the word out. Uh, we're happy to work with them. They always uh, sit on the front lines. They know exactly what's going on in these different markets. And uh, so that's how we got into continuing education for the marijuana industry. It continues to change. It continues to evolve. We're excited that it's been legalized in um, Illinois. We're doing our first program here in Illinois. We're going to Michigan again. It was just legalized two years ago. Um, Florida, maybe. Florida has been kind of uh, tentative. Uh, Colorado, I do not go to because uh, my cousin's company, uh, CLE International, is located in Denver, and um, we let them take it from there. But um, Oregon, uh, California, these are big markets for us. We've seen a lot of changes, and that's good for us. We like to see changes because then we can we can present new cutting edge issues to our potential clients. Uh, I would say back in the year 2000, when it was new, we had a certain type of clientele. Typically they were almost kind of armchair quarterbacks within the marijuana field who said, aha, I can finally do what I've always loved to do. Uh, they got, you know, it was, that was a tough fight for a lot of those people, the early adopters. Uh, they, <clears throat> The, the ones that fought and succeeded and were able to get their licenses and open, I think they did quite well. Uh, next came more legitimate businesses. Uh, and I say that because it was more accepted by the general populace. And that would be insurance, banking, lending, real estate. And that that's when we really saw an increase because now we're looking at uh, a more mainstream group of people that want to invest in this. Uh, certain law firms early on said, no, we will not represent marijuana because it's illegal federally, especially if they had interstate offices. However, they soon realized that a lot of their clients inadvertently were marijuana clients. For instance, if a person owned a building and had lots of different space to rent out and they were renting to a marijuana industry, they were a, a marijuana client. So 
Uh, we've seen the big firms accept this, try to work with it, try to deal with it. Um, I think now we're kind of onto the third tier, which is a, a consolidation of the different businesses, meaning uh, the smaller businesses are either going bankrupt or they're being bought up by the bigger businesses. And um, and we'll see where it goes from here. It's it's exciting to be at the front lines and watch this change so dramatically over the last 10 years. And we're happy to be a part of it. Well, we're so happy that you're a part of it. And and we, of course, here at Hemp Barons are particularly concerned with the hemp crop, specifically the hemp crop and the very unique uh, bodies of law and regulation surrounding hemp, which, of course, as we all know, and one day we won't have to talk about uh, this incredibly versatile plant that that meets all of humanity's needs, cannabis, the genus cannabis, in the terms that we do right now. But on the heels of hysterical prohibition and around the intoxicating component of the cannabis plant, which is THC, uh, delta-9 tetrahydrocannabinol, we have these, these emerging and different bodies of law and regulation. And and for the listeners out there, um, I think a basic fundamental point so that you're aware is that lawyers keep their licenses, just like doctors, in order for them to keep their licenses, need to, need to educate themselves. There are changes in the law, updates in the law, um, updates in the way law is being interpreted, and so on and so forth. Um, and so they must meet uh, a certain number of credits of continuing legal education or CLE credits in order to keep their licenses. And so generally, uh, folks study that which is involved in their practice area. And also there are certain requirements, like all lawyers have to have an ethics uh, CLE every every time they go to renew their bar licenses, and it's different in different states. But I find it fascinating that folks began to realize as much as they didn't want to get into cannabis in any form, whether it be marijuana or whether it be hemp, um, that they were already involved in it because their existing clients were somehow getting involved with it with the unfolding of the revolution here. And I, you know, Dorsey and Whitney is a firm that I worked at for quite some time. And Michael Droke is, uh, is a main shareholder partner there and is still a very active mentor in my life today. Um, and then when they finally opened their, what they call their cannabis and hemp practice group, uh, Michael called, I think it was a year and a half ago. And he said, joy, I do believe hell has frozen over. And he sent me a link to the page and I just, I just, my heart was singing, um, because I was working at Dorsey and Whitney between 1998 and I think 2003 or so with long dreadlocks down past my derriere. Um, and my nickname was Rasta, the hardest working, highest billable hour uh, billing paralegal in the in the shop. Um, and just imagine my um, how my heart was warmed. So hemp is actually another one of those topics where maybe a little too early in terms of absolutely not too early to offer, as the seminar group does, a, a hemp portion or a hemp component within a larger marijuana or adult and recre adult and medical use uh, cannabis CLE, um, there's always a hemp portion. And I've been very honored to be able to conduct a, a large majority of those hemp components over the last five years uh, with the seminar group. And we've discussed along the way, is it time yet for there to be a full day or and, and one day, even a two day uh, 
CLE seminar dedicated exclusively to hemp. And, you know, we're, we're really just, I don't think we're quite there yet. It would be a little early, even though it's a fascinating area of law that is rapidly developing and unfolding in multiple states. But I feel like just like what we're doing um, with the seminar group for CBD considerations in the Pacific Northwest, it's probably a half a day or so right now. Um, Stephanie, if I could ask you a question, you're often in the room, you are the program coordinator, you're chasing down the speakers, and it's not easy in these emerging areas of law. It's very easy with folks who are doing various aspects of uh, water rights law or real estate law or commercial litigation. Those Getting those programs together are standard. In many, of, in many cases, it's a file save as, and there's just some updates to the extent they exist. Uh, but in these new, just literally being developed, emerging bodies, it's difficult. Stephanie gets to chase everybody down um, and is often there facilitating physically in the room uh, these, these programs with the various speakers that are also often live streamed at the same time. So folks can be physically in the room and be present for the CLEs and oftentimes the seminar group with its large technological capabilities and, and very professional IT staff also live streams them and uh, the lawyers can engage remotely live from wherever they are. Um, and sometimes they're available, of course, after the fact uh, so that folks can, can take advantage of the, of the learning um, if they weren't able to be there or, or participate remotely live. But Stephanie, so tell me, do you have any stories in your story bank uh, because I know that I often uh, get get to my portion of uh, for the hemp portion of these one and two day CLEs, and everyone's learned so so much about marijuana, and then I come in with hemp, and things are so uh, different. Uh, the way it's handled, um, the the way the different state departments of ag and state departments of health in various jurisdiction jurisdictions are are developing the law and policy. Do you have any stories? in your database of, of a brain there uh, or your memory bank of, of something unique that happened or something that an, an attorney reported to you after, after learning something new about hemp in one of these uh, seminars? Well, Joy, I do find that when I host these conferences, the attorneys that do attend and also other professionals are always overjoyed that we're doing a program on that subject matter. Um, and they're happy that the seminar group is doing it because we're well known for holding extremely professional programs with the uh, the best faculty that we can assemble. And uh, they come up to me after the programs and often thank me for putting on such an uh, incredible program on a topic that most people aren't covering at that point in time or certainly don't have senators and mayors and state representatives speaking at. So it's it's nice that we are able to acquire these faculty members that can then really educate people on information that's very difficult for them to attain in any other means. Uh, the news doesn't cover the information that they need to know. There's really aren't any books or literature on it. Very few podcasts and things like that that actually address regulatory and legal aspects. So it's quite nice to know that the work that we're doing is well received out there in the world. And it feels like a sense of accomplishment after every marijuana seminar that I host. And it's just a delightful group of people to work with as well. I find that the the people that practice in this space tend to be fairly down to earth and they're a joy to work with. Well, and they're well received because the speakers and the content is so professionally curated. 
And that's what is so amazing, I think, about about the seminar group, and it's why uh, folks keep keep coming back again to be able to, as Chris mentioned, have access to Hillary Bricken, who really is. I, I hate to use the word in terms of such a uh, such a noble profession, but a straight up rock star nationally and up and down the West Coast. Um, really, not only in getting in there in the developing law and regulation, but also leading the industry and guiding clients. Harris Bricken has really been guiding clients in um, all forms of cannabis industry as leaders since the very beginning. And so to have uh, a gal like um, Harris Bricken or an attorney, I should say, um, like Harris Bricken involved in this with all of her connections um, has, and it's how, in fact, I was brought on to the seminar group from my relationship um, with, with Hillary Bricken, of course, has been just a tremendous boost, but it's the seminar group's commitment to that level of professionalism um, that, obviously creates this success and creates these robust programs that are allowing lawyers then to go forth, guide their clients and build the hemp economy, build the cannabis economy so effectively. So much of that effective uh, guidance and advice, it gets traced back directly to the seminar group and the CLEs and the information um, that you're putting forth. You mentioned also, Steph, absolutely, the lawmakers and the regulators that you have speaking at these events, uh, you know, for folks to be able to directly address nuanced questions, you know, you're never going to be able to get a, a, these folks on the, on the phone. They're very, very busy. If you're not already a licensee, it's going to be very difficult to escalate your question up to a high-level regulator um, or, or a lawmaker. You're talking to a legislative aide. You're talking to an assistant when we talk to these lawmakers. But when, when we're in the room at a seminar group uh, CLE, we have direct access. And what's even more incredible is you're in a room full of attorneys and other regulators and industry leaders and professionals, as you well know, uh, there are CPAs, real estate agents, all number of ancillary professions that are involved in these, in these emerging markets that are in the room. But they get the benefit, again, of these really kind of hair splitting, and that's what it comes down to in so many ways, whether it's cannabis or hemp, these developing areas of law the hair-splitting nuanced questions that these lawyers are asking that everyone is benefiting from and getting the answers directly from the horse's mouth of the lawmakers and the regulators and how they're treating that. And oftentimes, sometimes, the answer is, we haven't figured out how to handle that yet. And as a result, we're inclined to do this. And Or as a result, we're giving the enforcement officers the ability to use their discretion. This is all very, very valuable information uh, for folks to have. And the other thing is, that these lawyers and, and other professionals are bringing with them to the audience the various crazy slash unusual uh, circumstances that they've run into as a result of serving their clients. And so it really does become a, a, just a breeding ground and a training ground to really dial in um, how to handle some of these unusual confounding and in many ways contradicting 
um, the situations we find ourselves in. And I say contradicting because sometimes local law contradicts state law, contradicts federal law in a multitude of areas where things intersect. When we're talking about any form of cannabis, whether it's marijuana or hemp, we're talking about having to touch into the public health law, criminal law, agriculture laws, uh, you know, real estate law, all of those things. So it's, it's just very, very fascinating. Uh, let me ask you, Chris, in terms of the future, uh, what do you see in trends and, and what are some other things that, uh, that the seminar group is looking at for, and, and whether it's adult and medical cannabis or, and or hemp or any of the specific, of course, markets that hemp serves, its derivatives and so on? I've got a quick question for you, Joy, because we haven't talked about this in a while. What do you think the future of hemp is? You know, initially hemp was uh, a, a, a cannabis product but without the THC. Uh, I envision rope and clothing and, and whatnot. Uh, what do you see as the future of, of hemp? Uh, and then perhaps the relation to CBDs and the relation to uh, marijuana. Oh, so happy to ask that. I love this. This hardly ever happens. Well, the world of hemp is huge, Chris. And I'm so thrilled that you have asked this question because hemp serves all of the needs of humanity. It, of course, is the highest digestible form of protein in the entire plant and animal kingdom, more digestible protein than soy, chicken, whey, beef, and that's because it doesn't have any trypsin inhibitors. It has a full uh, menu of amino acids uh, and various other things. So right there for human and animal nutrition, that is a gigantic market. And of course, we see uh, that the predictors from data analytics that are out there say that there will be a compound annual growth rate of 24% between now and 2022 in the hemp market um, for a variety of reasons, a gluten intolerance or an increase in celiac, hemp is a non-gluten crop, as well as this desire, of course, to find vegetarian, vegan uh, sources of protein. And the fact that we have a fast-growing, carbon-sequestering uh, plant here that can produce this dense nutrition and feed the world and feed the animals is a, is a huge game changer. But that's just the very beginning. We get into body care, nutraceuticals, pharmaceuticals, paper, textiles, building materials, biocomposites, bioplastics, industrial sealants and coatings, energy, fuel, storage for energy, such as batteries, uh, nanotechnology, biomedical applications. Somebody stop me. I mean, the, the, the trillion dollar industries for hemp is, uh, they're endless. And in fact, all forms of cannabis, because the issue comes down to a plant that lends itself to processing, right? And so when we look at a, a cannabis plant that is grown for medical or adult use, uh, it looks more like a tree. It's uh, with branches and noting, and the, the trunk of the tree is of varying diameters. Whereas hemp, in its certified pedigreed uh, genetics, grown strictly for the fiber market, so to speak, um, you know, grown very, very close together, two to 300 plants per square meter, um, with very uniform diameters, hardly any branching or noting or, or leaves at all. Um, so we really get into what market we're trying to serve here. But the bottom line is that while there are some genetic differences, of course, in the resinous parts and flowering parts of hemp and marijuana uh, types of, of cannabis, 
there's very little genetic differences in the stock itself, which is the most valuable biocellulose on the planet. And, in, and by that, I mean, we have even discovered on the nanoscale, and the, a nanometer is one billionth of a meter. I mean, it is just the smallest, most infinitesimal um, measure of measuring unit that we have. And we have now seen, because we have the technology to look at things on the nanoscale, uh, that that hemp biocellulose has surface area and strength second only to graphite whiskers and carbon nanotubes, which materials, of course, are cost prohibitive even to perform research and development on, uh, much less to create products that mere mortals could buy on the shelves of our grocery and department stores. Um, so it's a real game changer in that respect. And uh, we're going to see these developing markets as infrastructure and innovation come online. Europe is way ahead of us in terms of building materials, biocomposites, bioplastics, as is Australia. Um, and then China is way ahead of us in terms of textiles with hemp. Um, and we can thank prohibition, of course, for the retardation or the arrested development of these types of innovations and ingenuities. But what's amazing is the plant has now been liberated, uh, particularly in the United States, has reclaimed its place in the broad light of day with America's other agricultural crops as a result of the 2018 Farm Bill. And these researchers from universities to well-funded companies around the world, but all over the United States, are all over this plant and are so excited about it and all of the surprises and the changes that it brings and the things that they learn. And so while this infrastructure develops, though, we don't want our, our farmers to grow so much biomass for markets for which there's no infrastructure to process it and manufacture goods. So we've, we've been asking how the movement has been going is sort of, we've been working in tandem and putting one foot in front of the other, but asking farmers to grow a crop for which there's very little infrastructure and then asking investors to invest in an infrastructure for which there was very little crop. Well, now we have, we've gained busters here. We probably grew about 230,000 acres of hemp in the United States last year, or the 2019 growing season. Uh, about 511 or so thousand acres were actually permitted to grow, but that's not how much were actually planted, whether it was lack of land, genetics, funding, uh, that type of thing. People applied for that many acres, but that wasn't as many that were planted. And on those 230,000 acres, probably only 115 or so, 50 to 60% of that um, will be harvested or was harvested. Again, due to non-compliant crops or lack of funding, didn't have a place to store it or dry it, didn't have the equipment to harvest it, didn't have the labor so on and so forth. This is what the unfolding of the reemergence of a, of a crop like hemp looks like. Um, CBD, boy, you really hit the nail on the head when you said a low-hanging fruit and sort of entering saturation here. And again, while I see hemp extract, and, and I try to say that because certainly CBD, cannabidiol, an incredibly powerful non-intoxicating cannabinoid for which we see so many benefits, improving general wellness, lots of medical research going on in the World Health Organization, having performed and, and published its critical review says this is safe, this is promising. We do not see a potential for dependency or abuse um, with this. <clears throat> but keep in mind, 
that there are now we're up to over 140 cannabinoids that we have discovered in this plant. And 10 or so years ago, we'd only discovered 60. And, uh, and, and so we're seeing CBG, cannabigerol, and we're seeing CBN, cannabinol, and some others, but particularly CBG and CBN now starting to come on the market. I have in my own possession a CBG isolate. I have a CBN vape pen. These products are out there. Um, and they're, they're only going to continue. So I do think that these, that the extract market and the general wellness market for both animals and humans, and particularly the medical and therapeutic market is obviously huge. Um, but again, the trillion dollar markets, I would say for hemp are those more industrial, uh, markets. And we are waiting for the FDA because CBD is absolutely legal. The 2018 Farm Bill removed from the Controlled Substances Act hemp and its extracts, compounds, derivatives, cannabinoids, the word is actually in the definition. The issue is that because GW Pharmaceuticals um, went through, as any company does, if they want to get a drug approved in the United States, they go through an IND process, an investigational new drug process. And of course, we are certainly waiting for the FDA to create its regulatory framework uh, so that uh, there will be, we'll move beyond a guidance position. Currently, the guidance position for the FDA is that since CBD, pure isolate CBD has been approved as a drug in the form of Epidiolex, that it should not be sold as a, or marketed as a dietary supplement or a food. But that is a guidance position at present. And uh, until they make either a final agency determination or there's some final action, it will remain as a guidance position as they acquire scientific and safety data uh, regarding CBD and its use in humans and animals as a dietary supplement, as a, as a food, um, and then create a regulatory framework. So, but having said that, as you know, these markets are huge. So uh, the the sky is the limit for the seminar group and uh, and what it will be able to offer folks who, as the, as the hemp industries expand, I mean, the hemp building materials industry alone is, will eventually take up a full day seminar just on hemp building materials, just law and regulation related to hempcrete, hemp board, hemp flooring, all of those things. So, I see in hemp, I, I see a world that is going to become hemp blended very quickly because it is a fast growing natural resource that has so many distinct characteristics and unique qualities that when blended in any of these industrial markets or, or other markets actually creates a superior product, whether it's in performance or longevity or both. Well, um, yeah, we couldn't agree more. I, I, we're looking forward to the next stages, the the the, uh, the new products that are coming out. Uh, people like you leading the charge and getting these things up to speed. This is a, a wide open area for us within the educational field that we're happy to jump on. I'm glad that we have uh, a little bit of history behind us to to lead us into this and lead our clients into this as as well. Steph, do you have thoughts on the clients that you interacted with on, on hemp and the, the potentials? Yeah, you know, I'm finding that a lot of people aren't really even aware of all the benefits of hemp and the things that it's able to do. So when we do have that hemp topic at the conferences, 
Uh, people are delighted to hear about it. Even some of the attorneys don't realize all the ins and outs of, of um, the different things that you can do with hemp. So I think that it's a great topic to include in our programs and definitely a great resource for the whole planet. I couldn't be more grateful for the for really the seminar group going for it. And, and again, in all forms of cannabis, it's such an important part of building these industries and building these economies. We, as much as people want to make jokes about lawyers, it's law and regulation and money that are making this world go around. And we've got to educate the lawyers if we want to change the world. Um, and, and hemp is here to do that for us. And so it's just really thrilling. And, and again, um, if, if you want to look, folks who want to explore more, and it's not just even though we keep talking about CLEs, continuing legal education credits, <laughs> all kinds of professionals uh, come to these to be educated. And, and Chris, could you tell us a little bit about how uh, lawyer, non-lawyers may be able to get uh, credit for attending these events? Most professionals can get credit for these programs. So the seminar group, we are a continuing legal and professional education provider. If anyone asks, I point to the fact that we are legal and regulatory. That's what we look at. So I always get these programs approved for continuing legal education. However, if the program would apply to someone else, uh, someone within the health industry, someone within the design industry, someone within the insurance industry, we figure out how to get credits for that. And sometimes there are certain uh, professions that are, are so small and so finite that we don't see them on our radar. However, we give everyone a certificate of attendance. We give everyone all the materials, the outline, and typically that's all you need to apply for, for self-study home credits. Um, so we try to we try to uh, accommodate as as many professions as possible. We are not a sales pitch. We are just education within education, legal and regulatory. And uh, we like our niche. Uh, there's there's not very many groups that do exactly what we do. We are the opposite of a sales pitch. We we just tell people the facts and let them uh, figure out how to to make their world better and help them serve their clients better by going to these events. I get a lot of government folks who attend our, our meetings, especially within environmental law, because these are things that they don't uh, particularly understand or are trained in if they're government officials, but not, not attorneys. Uh, we get a lot of NGOs, meaning uh, non-governmental organizations or nonprofits that show up for the same reason <clears throat> to learn how to you know, protect the planet in, in whatever form they're, they're pursuing. Uh, I get students who go to our programs and oftentimes we can allow them or we can give them some type of continuing education credit for their class. You know, if they, if they need to prove that they did some extracurricular activity, we can provide that for them as well. And I would say that, you know, we get a lot of press to our, our programs and anytime uh, someone from the press shows up, they can get six to eight articles out of attending our our program, so we give them a lot of, of potential material with which they can they can uh, write about or uh, disseminate to to their uh, their their fan base. Um, so yeah, and and thanks, Joy, for being part of our education system. It's been a pleasure working with you, and and uh, I'm glad that you're doing so much for the industry. I'm glad that you're doing this podcast. Uh, this this all helps. You know, just getting the information out there. This this all helps. 
because this is a, you know, traditionally it's been a black market uh, economy and it's, it's coming into uh, the real world now and it, and it is going to be impactful. And within your CBDs, you know, we're looking at some of the early adopters we saw or not CBDs within hemp, some of the early adopters we saw, but on a larger scale, you know, who, who's going to come up and do the next uh, 10,000, 100,000 acres of, of hemp products. And then <clears throat> how are you going to get the, those hemp products to the, the producers who, who create the products that you have cited? Uh, I think this is a, a, a wide open industry and, and uh, I hope you do really well in this. And we're glad to have you on that side uh, promoting this. Well, it's such an honor and a pleasure. And I, and I think, too, what's fascinating about hemp is, of course, most of hemp, the most of the plant has never been illegal a day in the history of the United States of America. So we've never had illicit markets for the hemp grain industry or the hemp fiber industrial industries. It's just that as of 1970, Controlled Substances Act, it became a crime to grow the plant. So then we became the world's largest importers, although we always were, even traditionally, England and the United States always were huge importers. But the United States, as it sits today, is still the largest importer of hemp. And it's our own Controlled Substances Act that that made that occur. Um, so it's just fascinating. And then, of course, there has absolutely been that illicit or black market, as you say, for, for marijuana, just so important to get uh, the fog of prohibition and all of the hysteria and non-science-based um, non-information and non-facts re-educating folks and, and getting the social engineering that occurred starting in the early 30s out of everyone's mind and just start treating these things like the commodities that uh, they are, like the safe and legal uh, commodities that they are. And folks can learn more by going to theseminargroup.net. Remember, that's theseminargroup.net. And for folks who want to participate remotely or be there in person, on March 24th, uh, I am, again, very proud to be the program chair for the seminar group's uh, CLE, a half-day CLE in downtown Seattle at the Crown Plaza. Um, and it is CBD Considerations in the Pacific Northwest, where I will be giving a, a, a state and federal legal update with legal considerations. We'll have an attorney there speaking, uh, Daniel Short of Harris Bricken himself, speaking about pet CBD products and legal and regulatory issues around that, um, as well as CGMP issues, current good manufacturing practices and the codes of federal regulation uh, that apply uh, to these products, to these hemp extract CBD products, and labeling and marketing and branding considerations. So this is really going to be jam-packed. And for those who are either already involved in the industry, and I deal with all the time, folks are already involved in the hemp CBD industry, but they have no foundation. They have literally just jumped into it without availing themselves of the tremendously complex intersecting bodies of law and regulation that affect the very businesses that they're engaged in. And then folks who want to get into it, this is for you. Uh, we, I'd love to meet everybody in person, but I think it's wonderful again uh, the seminar group has just very vast technological capabilities, and this will also be live streamed on the webcast. But please go to theseminargroup.net to check that out. Again, March 24th. 
Beth, Chris, it's an honor and a pleasure to know you. Thank you for everything that you do for all areas of law, but obviously, and in particularly, for the critical and emerging areas of law surrounding all forms of cannabis, medical, adult use, and hemp. Chris and Steph, thank you so much for being with us today. Oh, thanks so much, Joy. It's been a pleasure speaking with you. And thank you for having us on your program. Yeah, thanks, Joy. I look forward to seeing you in a few weeks. Can't wait. Bye-bye, guys. Thanks for listening to today's show. To check out more great cannabis podcasts, go to podconnects.com. Here's a preview of one of our other shows. Season one of Dope History is now available at dopehistory.com. Dope History weaves you through the lives of those who have been touched by cannabis or have had an influence on the events that shaped our laws or relationships with this plant. You'll hear tales from Frenchie Cannoli, Keith Strop, Eddie Lepp, Tom Alexander, Ed Rosenthal, Wolf Seagull, Jorge Cervantes, and Tommy Chong. Available now at DopeHistory.com.